Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. What follows is a, a special Wednesday edition of Fangraphs Audio featuring uh, lead prospect analyst Kyla McDaniel. Of course, uh, course Kyla McDaniel has on Tuesday has published his top 200 prospect list for Fangraphs.com. And what follows is a conversation devoted almost wholly to that subject. It begins, uh, begins Kylie addresses some pressing concerns I have regarding the college game. Like, for example, uh, with, in particular regarding a Vanderbilt right-hander Carson Fulmer's breaking ball. Uh, does it have more vertical or horizontal break? But right after that, uh, in the, and other small, brief pressing concerns regarding the college game, what we have here is a, uh, is a, a conversation devoted entirely to the top 200 list. Uh, Kylie addresses why, for example, he's opted for a tiering system uh, by future value as opposed to merely uh, ranking the players 1 through 200. Um, he talks about some assessments that have changed. I think Addison Russell went from a 60 to a 65, perhaps. That's just one of the moves. It's an example. Perhaps it's an incorrect example. I don't remember. But there, Addison Russell did did change. So did some others. Uh, uh, Kyla McDaniel addresses um, how he navigated those situations where a player belonged to a club whose organizational list, sorry, whose organizational list he hasn't published yet. Uh, how did how did Kylie go about um, uh, ranking those sorts of players? Also, some surprises. Steven Sousa, I think, ended up closer to the top of the list than Kyla McDaniel originally guessed, and that is uh, he addresses that and other players along those lines. That's all to follow. Uh, uh, before the conversation, but after this introduction, there's a musical interlude, and as he does um, for every edition of the podcast in which he appears, Kylie has provided the, that musical interlude. Interlude. I don't know much about it. It's a musical. It's this introduction, a musical interlude, and then a conversation with uh, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, Kyla McDaniel, on Fangraphs Audio. Thank you. Okay, I meant like in a broad sense. Uh, I was just uh, enjoying some time on the couch, um, like a sexy divorcee with a glass of white wine. Watching a housewife show? No, I was I was with my dog. Well, it's good because Brenda's been such a bitch this season. It's unbelievable. Wait, is that a thing you know for real? No, I just made that name up. Uh, <laughs> as far as you know. <laughs> let me uh, wait. Were you? You said you were driving. Were you? Were you somewhere important, or were you somewhere? Minor? I was at lunch with a scout. Actually, I wasn't oh. going to mention that, but if you're going to ask. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's all I was going to say. I don't need to know anything more than that. I got wings, so okay. It was a good lunch. Um. And a me, Guinness. Oh, that's oh sounds like a great lunch. Oh uh, yeah, it's just it's pretty good. I should have drive a while. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, let me ask. Uh, we're going to talk probably about the. Uh, you, you of course today published your top 200 prospect list. Very exciting. That one up today. Yep. Very exciting and uh, and and very well done. Uh, and I'm, it appears as though it probably took uh, quite a bit in the way of construction. Uh, yeah, it was it was in the works for about a month of right. the sort of emails and massaging and whatnot. Right. And and I I think that uh, I mean one of the things you say. Uh, perhaps this falls under the massaging part of it, is um, those situations when um, assessments have changed slightly. 
Uh, we'll get to that um, you know, once you start seeing things in context. Um, I, I actually want to ask you some things that don't pertain to the list for the moment, uh, but they pertain to college baseball and college baseball prospects, if that's all right. Okay, this is your show. Yeah, I want to. Uh, so I saw Carson Fulmer pitch for the first time this weekend. It's and a fun experience. It is, yeah. He's. Um, it's a hectic process. He's. I think it's. I described his his uh, delivery as alarmingly sudden. He has significantly cleaned up his delivery since high school. Okay, so that's so that's even cleaner because, and it's not. That was the thing because like you could see high effort sometimes, but. He's just still, and then he begins very quickly. It's, it's just everything starts suddenly. In in high school, his eyes were staring at his shoes when he released the ball. His head violence was so uh, uh, pronounced. Yeah, pronounced, yeah. So, well, anyway, it is fun watching him. And actually, uh, this is not something I expected, but the Vanderbilt – uh, the Vanderbilt broadcast, their camera angle is dead center, which I haven't seen. In front I of noticed college, that, yeah. On a college camera before. And I don't even think it was that way a couple of years ago when I watched some Vanderbilt games. So that's a nice improvement, and it really gives you a sense of uh, what a pitcher's throwing. Um, I wanted to ask about him. The the breaking ball I saw, at least I saw mostly uh, during that game, was one uh, that it had quite a bit of um, horizontal movement, a lot of glove side movement, and but maybe it was because I was seeing it thrown to right-handers. But there's sort of a famous Vine clip now of him striking out uh, University of Kentucky's A.J. Reed last year on three consecutive pitches. Um, and I'm looking that up now. I don't necessarily know when it's from. Um, actually, Ron... I believe Sean, it was when he was relieving last year. I remember when that was a thing. Okay. Um and well, I, the the only thing I wanted to ask was because in, in that clip to AJ Reed, who was a left-handed batter, is now a prospect in one of the systems. Which system is it? Houston? Okay, Houston system. He was a fantastic college hitter last year. Was AJ Reed? Yeah, uh, actually, he was the best college hitter last <laughs> yeah, year. Right? Yeah, and like as far as performance, not right, prospect. Right, right. Um, uh, um, but uh, in that in that video, the video against Reed, I, Fulmer was throwing more of a vertically oriented curveball. Yeah, uh, at least so far as I could tell. Although I, that's yeah, you're looking from a more standard off center view. Right. So I, I think the angle has something to do with it. I was also wondering if maybe if if I was wondering if he's uh, made tweaks to the breaking ball. If maybe he, he throws one with more glove side break against right handers. Um, if you don't know the answer to any of this, I was just wondering if it I believe that's good. true. I've seen him pitch a lot, and I'm trying to recall. I'm actually pulling up my video I took of him last spring. Okay. Uh, but yeah, if I. I remember him throwing both kinds, sort of one of those guys that can sort of manipulate the break, and I believe it's sort of a righty versus lefty sort of thing, as you're suggesting. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, yeah, I was just curious. And, of course, uh, if you are facing the opposite hand uh, type of batter, if you're a righty, uh, righty pitcher facing a lefty batter, it's good to have more vertical movement on your pitches. Um, yeah, you don't want to just run right into his uh, into his wheelhouse. Right, exactly. Um but uh, if anyone listening to this has not had a, the opportunity to watch Carson Fulmer pitch, it is it is very entertaining. Um, he also has spectacles uh, while he pitches. He does. And uh, the, anyone who has, I forget, I don't know what level of um, subscription it is, um, um, cable subscription. But if uh, SEC Network is actually like uh, pretty widely available. Um, so you can watch it there or watch it on 
Anyways, uh, he's a lot of fun to watch. But that was one question. Another question I had was a very brief one concerning his teammate, Walker Bueller, who in your way too early uh, draft rankings uh, actually finishes ahead of Carson Fulmer. Or was yes. play, you placed him ahead of Carson Fulmer. But he did not pitch this weekend. I think it has something to do with elbow trouble. Does that sound familiar? Uh, I believe it was elbow. I know it was arm soreness of some kind. Okay, all right. And, and as a for you as a prospect – Analyst, as a lead prospect analyst, in fact. Led, I believe, actually. Yeah, led. How do you, uh, like early season elbow soreness, how, how worried does that make you, or to what degree would it affect his, um, you know, what you would consider his draft stock, I guess? Well, it's been framed as a just sort of, if it was the World Series, he'd pitch, but, you know, we're early, we got tons of depth, uh, you know, take it easy here. And he'll miss this week, but he'll be back next week. That's how it's been framed, which is, a, you know, less than nothing come draft time. Uh, however, colleges are, we'll say, notorious for not being forthcoming. Sort of, sort of like you're the airline pilot that knows you have an hour delay and you just every 15 minutes say it's going to be another 15 minutes. Wait, uh, is that what they're doing? That's what they're doing. Yeah. Oh, man. Because if just, they I... said it was going to be an hour, everyone's off the plane, you got to go back in, you lose your spot in line. And so that's how. That's so how it's just a game that everyone accepts. Is just going to say 15 more minutes every time. Experienced travelers know this, mm-hmm. so you've kind of <laughs> revealed your hand. I've outed outed myself as a naif in that area. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but sure. Yeah. Uh, I just pulled up a Fulmer video from when he was starting last spring, and I have him throwing a vertical curveball against a righty. So, okay. and I knew he threw more of a three quarter one in high school, so it may just be day to day differently. Okay. All right. I was just curious about it. Uh, I saw that pitch, and well, I saw those two, and you know, usually you don't see ton of variation in breaking balls, but maybe smarter pitchers or pitchers who know their stuff, or maybe pitchers who don't know their stuff, and they just, it just it comes out. It just comes out, out the way it comes out. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, and, okay, so Bueller, nothing, not That's very... That's what she said. <laughs> yep. Not, not, so Bueller's not very worrisome at this point, you're saying? No, 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 no. Is, he, is he sort of a must... Is he appointment television, I should say, in the way uh, in the way that Fulmer is? Uh, Fulmer is more exciting because there's, like like you're saying, a, sort of a more interesting to watch delivery, and he's intense, and he kind of throws like a reliever the entire game. The game I saw him against Florida, he threw a complete game, I believe a shutout, and on pitch like 123 he hit 97 mm-hmm. or so, something like that. <laughs> I tweeted he, what it he was. Shouldn't, he shouldn't have been throwing that. Why was he throwing 123? It, it, well, it's like he went into the ninth with like 101, and you're thinking like, oh, they'll give him an extra couple pitches, and he just kind of got a couple guys deep, and you could tell he really wanted it. And he's one of those guys that like throws a gazillion pitches. His velo doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't get hurt. Like He's in that kind of Tyler Danish thing where it's like, this isn't supposed to work, but throw my hands up. It keeps working. He's never been hurt before, so what are we going to do? Right. Uh, but Bueller is more of like the, I don't know, 6'2", 170, some questions on the durability because he's so skinny. But it's like real easy delivery, gets it into the mid-90s, he'll hit 96, everything's above average, it'll flash plus. It's it's the same kind of stuff as Fulmer, uh, but he's skinnier and it's a cleaner delivery. So, I don't know, you could decide if you think that's interesting. I think Fulmer's more fun to watch just because he's, he's uh, I don't know, it's like it's sort of like Craig, Craig Kimberl was told, all right, you have to start now, you right. know, change your delivery and see how long it can last. It's <clears throat> it's sort of like it's high wire act. What would, it, what would happen if Craig Kimberl pitched in the SEC and they were they told him he was a starter? I'd probably strike a lot of guys out. I mean, well, that's what throw too many pitches by the fifth inning and get yanked is what I guess. Okay. Yeah. Well, he was uh, he's good because he's good at getting batters out for one to two innings. Very good at it. And he was, I believe, he was junior college in Alabama. I want to say he was very low profile when he was drafted. Yeah, you're exactly right. Wallace State Community College. Oh yeah, Wallace State. Uh, we'll not do it now, but we can go back and look at his numbers from. 
But the, uh, <laughs> Let's two, read his baseball reference page on, <laughs> live on this podcast. 2008 season or whatever. Uh, okay, so that was the, those were two questions I had. Oh, yeah, and the third one, I was just watching a pitcher uh, uh, from Rice uh, just now named Willie Amador. He's a freshman. Don't know him. Uh, no, it's, yeah. Willie Amador does not touch 90 miles per hour. It appeared, that appeared to be I, some stuff I read about him. That would explain why Right. Reading about it, maybe he like has touched it before, but it's not where he sits for the game. He's a right-hander. But he also had uh, what appeared to be, if not if not excellent command of a breaking ball, then a then a, a breaking ball with um, uh, entirely serviceable um, break to it. Um, it was a it was a good looking breaking ball, uh, is what I'm saying. And I guess a question I have it's just a, it it could be a very dumb question, but I just want to clarify: is do you come across guys in, in college or elsewhere whose breaking balls are advanced, but they just don't have uh, the velocity to ever sort of render them, you know, a first round or fit, even fifth round type prospect? Yeah, I mean, typically what you see is a guy doesn't have an above average breaking ball until he has above average arm speed, meaning fastball velocity. But often in uh, in college, you'll see the, you know, maybe the Friday starter for a second tier team or the Sunday guy for an SEC team uh, will be that guy that's, 86 to 91 kind of lives in the 80s and he has a 55 breaking ball and just throws it a ton and it's like just enough to keep college hitters off balance even though it's like everything's kind of you know fringy fastball 50 to 55 breaking ball just enough of sort of like a fringy change up like it's one of those sort of things where that's the kind of guy that will succeed in the SEC and get a chance and obviously if in the SEC everywhere else in college baseball, and get a chance to pitch, but is, you know, barely a, a professional-type player, and then there'll be a guy in the bullpen that's 6'4", 180, and can't throw a strike, but hits 95, that is much more of a professional prospect, but isn't really an asset that year. That's sort of that whole continuum. And the guy the guy with a better breaking ball than fastball is sort of a an anomaly, but also... Uh, sort of common to find at those sorts of programs. And you can usually identify those guys early. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Well, because he, he had quite a few strikes. I mean, granted, they were playing Houston Baptist. I don't know the quality of that program. but Yeah, like TCU had one of the best teams in the country, and their Friday guy was a side armor that threw 83-85. And their Saturday guy was Brandon Finnegan. <laughs> so, oh, so to give you an idea of how some of these big programs like work out, how things go, it's like a guy that has absolutely no business playing pro ball was ahead of Brandon Finnegan. And I watched him, and he was, like, putting up better numbers at some level, too. Really? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But when you find a guy, you find a guy. Okay, wow. Okay, that was well, very interesting. Thank you so much for that. Uh, it's, yeah, it's also, like, uh, big league organizations aren't racing to have the best farm system, or else the Astros would have waited until today to do the <laughs> Gavin Gattis trade. In the same way, college... The programs aren't trying to get the most draft prospects. They're actually trying to win games. So they'll they'll pick the weird guy if he keeps striking guys out. And also, and typically those guys come through junior college too, because you you don't see that side arming mid '80s guy in high school and think, well, let's give him a full ride to TCU. He's gonna be our Friday guy. In uh, in in some ways, an advantage not to have a guy who's necessarily gonna go. Yeah, uh, then you get four years instead of three. Right, you get four years instead of three. Right. Um, let's uh, let's talk about let's talk about your great your great list of names. <laughs> I didn't know it was so British today. It is, uh, well, it's, yeah, it's certainly stentorian. I, I think that's what I mean. Stentorian? I think I might need stentorian. Can we say the hypothetical name of your kid this week, or is that still embargo? No, no, it's not, not invited. 
<laughs> I think you might have taken the most pleasure out of that of anyone. I still do. I'm going to leave you voicemails saying the name over and over. <laughs> I think I meant Centurion. Yes, a loud and powerful voice. A Centurion, a Centurion announcement. Um, uh, you you did a top 200 prospect list. First of all, uh, many of these are many of the sort of lists you find in the industry are top. 100, or I think Baseball Prospectus is top 101, maybe. Uh, I believe, I uh, believe John Sickles does top 150. Uh, what, how did for you? How did? How, why does top 200 make sense? Because I think I'm better than all those people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well, so in every, every joke, there's a little bit of truth or a lot of truth. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> but let's uh, let's move beyond that. Uh, what? Yeah. But I guess what's your what? What was for you? What made sense about that number? Well, yeah, once we got going through the team list, I decided, all right, all the 50 and up guys, that should be the list. Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you by, you know, the way I present the list that those are the guys that are important. And I didn't know how many I would have until, until I got through about 12 or 13 teams. And I was like, all right, let me try to sort of guesstimate what the other half of the league's going to be and get an idea of how many people there are so I can kind of start lining this thing up. And then, uh, I think my first estimate was 135, ended up being 142. Um, so I figured out, like, okay, it's not 100, and it's not 200, and it's not an even number, so what am I going to do with this? And then as I was lining, I made that sort of big grid with everybody but for every by every team, and I realized if I wanted to expand it to 150 just to get an even number, uh, I would have to go through every 45, which was over 200 players, and pick out eight. And I was like, that's going to take forever. And that's when I decided to split the 45s and 40s into 45 plus and 40 plus. Ah, uh, yes, which is just so it's more manageable to work with. And yeah. then after I did that, it worked out that I believe it was 198 or 199. I was like, oh, I'll just throw in one more player and we'll be good. So who was the player? Do we get to know that guy? Uh, no, I don't remember who it was. I <laughs> actually kept moving it around. Like until until like two or three days ago, I still added and subtracted a few guys. So I think the last guy I added was Gilbert Lara, but I don't think he's the worst one. So. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I knew I wasn't going to rank all the way to 200, so I I couldn't tell you this guy was 200, and then this guy got thrown in. Um, well, I noticed in the comment section you invited uh, more than one commenter to think of uh, player X or player Y as uh, the 201st guy on the list. I, I thought you were going to say I invited more than one commenter to go screw himself. <laughs> no, no, I think it was – well, I, I only checked kind of early on. Yeah, I'm actually about to go back and read all the comments now. I saw the first 30, and I think we're over 100 now. But, so pe- but, uh, the, but people were very civil. Surprisingly. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of let down. Yeah, well, I think <clears> – <throat> so part of it is um, – well, of course – oh, yeah, well, I mean, perhaps I should allow you to do this. I, one of the things that is um, um, sort of uh, – I don't know if it's unique to your list, but it certainly is – a is a big part of your list and all of your prospect work is the number of uh, caveats and qualifiers you provide at the beginning of it. It made its own article. There were so many. Yeah, that's right. It was. Yeah, it, it really was. It was an introduction, but it was really it was an entire post of qualifiers and caveats. <laughs> yeah, there, I don't know. There's a joke there. I don't know what it is. I, I remember I, I I told Dave Cameron like, all right, I've. I got the intro done. I got some of the reports done. He goes, this intro is way too long. No one's going to scroll past all this to read the list. I was like, yeah, no, actually knowing the whims of the internet, that's probably true, sadly. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, so do you have any caveats to make uh, to this conversation about the top 200 prospect list? Something that either you forgot to mention in either of that, those things or perhaps that you you feel you need to reiterate before we begin uh, discussing in earnest that list? 
if if you read the list and read the intro and read the chat and now you're uh, 15 minutes <laughs> into the podcast, you're on board with me. I don't okay. have to explain anything else. Okay. All right. Um, and by the way, thanks for listening, Rob. <laughs> yeah, there it is. The only listener. Uh, but one thing uh, I think one, one thing you just sort of mentioned, I think, with regard to Gilbert Lara, maybe some others, is that you, there were you were making changes. Um, and you have made them up till till recently, uh, the last couple of days it sounds like. And I'm curious. Yeah, as, I had a call that was over an hour at the Dodgers like the day before the list went up, and luckily it didn't really change where any of the guys went. But the 40s and 45s got shuffled a lot. All right. Well, that, so that's my question: is uh, what what were the motivating factors, the influences that had you shuffling this list? I mean, it sounds like this call was one of them, or could have been one of them. But what else was what else was involved? Um. Yeah, well, I had to make at least one call per team to just make sure my assumptions about their top 200 guys were correct. And then I was going to be running it past enough, like, you know, pro scouting directors and assistant GMs and things like that, that they were going to move guys if, you know, like DJ Peterson with the Mariners, whose list I haven't done yet. If I had him at 50 and he's supposed to be 150, somebody would have said something. Like, I would have figured it out. Mm -hmm. But if I forgot to put someone on there, like if Luis Gohara, who I have – I believe on the extras part there in the at the at the end. If he's supposed to be 40th and I don't have him on the list at all, somebody might not remember to tell me he should be on there. So I need to make sure I got all the names correct and in the general area, and then I could throw it into the sort of you know massaging time and it'll get worked out. So that was sort of what I was trying to do. And then once the list got whipped into shape over the last few days, when I get little breaks, I was doing my more sort of you know hour long detailed go through the whole system type calls and. Uh, and I think now, like, I think I've posted 18. When I started the top 200, I had two lists, the A's and Angels, that were already done, and I was just doing the top 200 first. I've probably got four or five more that are basically done, and, like, the remaining five or six are maybe one call from being done. So, really, I just got to write these now. Like, the, the the listing is pretty much finished. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, is there was there any – you mentioned that you had to make at least one call to every organization. Was there specific difficulties in dealing with the team's – uh, whose whose organizational list you you had not written yet? I, I mean, obviously, you you have some intim, you know some knowledge of most of the important guys, but um, I wonder if it uh, if it affected how you approached them at all. Uh, no, although some of them were like, I didn't know if you're ever going to email me. You hadn't done our list yet, and I was like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm taking a more deliberate pace for this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so sorry, guys. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it, it wasn't. I mean, some teams are a little hard to get a hold of, or I may, you know, there's some teams where I know almost the whole front office, and so I'll end up talking to six or seven of them, and there's other ones where I don't really know anyone in the office that well, and so I'll end up talking to one or two, and it'll be, you know, more 20, 30 minute calls, and that's, you sort of piece it together. So, some of those teams that are, you know, a little, little less information comes out of them for, for various reasons. Some of those were among the teams that I haven't done yet. But it wasn't anything specific. Like, well, you waited too long. We're not going to tell you. Sorry, it's okay. going to be secret now. Uh, one question I'd like uh, that a commenter asked uh, was something to the effect of, which player uh, surprised you that he that he sort of kept working his way to the top of the list? And I think that you said some. You said uh, Stephen Souza was one of those guys. Yeah. Are you going to make a uh, wait? Souza's last name of the is it a trumpet player? Yeah. <laughs> I figure there's a reference coming. I there was no, it. there was not. Uh, but I, I do like Steven Souza. I guess uh, what I want to ask is uh, if you have any more examples than that, like guys, because I think that's probably that to me is nice information. Players who 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 
for one reason or another, you just a couple of calls here or there, um, or or and, and we'll get to this I think with Addison Russell in a second. But just seeing all of the players laid out like this, you start to say, "Wow, Steven Souza is better than that guy, and also better than that other guy." Yeah, there were some guys like Sean and I with Kansas City where I just haven't made call hadn't made calls on their list until late, and so I didn't realize the stuff was as good last year. As it was. And Manaya, sorry, and to pause you, Manaya is sort of a strange player, right? Because wasn't he, he was at Indiana State, wasn't he? Yeah, he was not good as a sophomore. He was fantastic on the Cape, and then he was injured and very inconsistent in his draft year. It came out later he was hurt. He then slipped to the 34th pick and got top 10 money from Kansas City, didn't pitch at all after signing, and then came out this year and came out of the gates okay and then finished back to fantastic like he was on the Cape. It's like a lot of ups and downs. Right, right. And so I imagine... And in the interim, I believe he had hip surgery, and there was some arm soreness. So there's like a little bit of a cloud of can this guy stay healthy, but there hasn't been any like arm surgery, so it's not an enormous cloud. Right. So I, I would assume that for a player like that, it's hard to... What do you say? You're looking for, what, the average of all of his performances? I guess. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a lot more art than science. You find as you do this, like, yeah. Or, you, or, or alternatively, you have a sense, you have a sense of his ceiling, but you also know there's some risk associated with it. Yeah. And then, and that's one of those things I think you're going to get to with the Addison Russell thing where you're like, oh, this guy feels like a 55, but I'm doing that thinking, yeah, I think this is what a 55 is. And then you line them all up and you're like, oh, it's actually a high 55. Okay. And you, you see all the names. And then, of course, you get the responses from scouts and some of them you don't expect. Like Greg Bird got, kind of negative reviews from scouts based on what I thought I would be getting from, you know, the wider swath of scouts when I send out the top 100 and whatever I sent out. I think I had him like 80-something or 90, and, like, nobody said move him up. Nobody said he's in a good spot. He either wasn't referred to at all or I was told to move him down or I'm out or whatever. And it was all negative, and I was like, I saw him. I like him, but if it's, like, this overwhelmingly not positive mm-hmm. – Maybe I should rethink it. I'm like, yeah, I mean, he is first base only, and it is, you know, there's there's some stuff there that's not perfect. And and then you start looking like, oh, this pitcher, if he had a good season, could shoot up the list that's behind him. And Bird has another good season. He's already had two good seasons. I'm not sure he's going to move up that much higher. Maybe he's just, you know, he's one of these guys that's a first base profile that doesn't have seven power. And, you know, you're hoping he hits 270 with some walks and 25 homers. But if he doesn't, all of a sudden it's, you know, you're not sure it's an everyday guy. And I was like, yeah, no. Those guys are onto something. I'll, I'll slide them down. They're right. Um, so, what, what did happen in the case of, of, for example, Addison Russell? You, you mentioned it in brief just now. Um, I think he. What did he go from a fifty-five to a sixty? Was that what happened? Sixty to sixty-five. Okay, sixty to sixty-five. And that sixty-five group, that's a rarefied error, I think, because it's just Bryant and Buxton in that in that seven the group of seventies, and then uh, and then Russell uh, and and a couple maybe. Four, five guys in this in the sixty-five six, group. Six, six guys. guys. Yeah. Okay. Three pitchers, um, three hitters, and, and Moncada potentially. Right. And so he was a sixty originally. Was was Russell? Yeah. And the way I explained it was the Cubs were I don't know like the fourth or fifth team I did, and I knew Russell was behind Bryant. I didn't know how far. I didn't know how many players would end up in between them, and so I was like, well, Bryant's going to be at the top. That's seventy. Uh, Russell's going to be behind that, and I don't know if after I make all these calls and sort of stack them up if he's going to be third or 12th. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, and I feel like 12 would be a 60, and I know he's behind Bryant, so I'll just make him a 60, and then if I have to move him up, I have to move him up. And the way it worked out was, you know, Correa got hurt, so I think Correa would probably be third. 
And, uh, yeah, and then Russell just kind of ended up being there. And I also have a little more comfort with Russell than I think people with less history because uh, I saw him when he had 70 raw power and was a bigger dude. So if it turns out the one sort of concern with him is his release is a little slow, which may hinder him from being a shortstop if you have a you know superior option. Uh, if he moves to third base, he could just put on 30 pounds and hit 30 home runs. Like, I don't think a lot of people realize that that didn't see that version of him. Well, didn't, yeah, you did, I remember, I think we discussed it here. The, uh, did, didn't he lose weight specifically because he, he felt very strongly about, about wanting to play shortstop at some point? Yeah, he, he put on the weight, was on Team USA in the summer, and I believe it was Gavin Cicchini they put at shortstop, and they're like, you can't play short here. And you're probably not going to play short of the pros looking like this. And he was like, well, I don't like that. And so he like, went and just dropped like 30 pounds. <laughs> that's, like, that's not a thing. That's a, I don't know if that's just a thing that like a 19-year-old person can do. Well, but, and, the, and the funny thing is it wasn't like he put, like got fat. He didn't look like Pablo Sandoval. If you look at the video or pictures of him, he's got the whitest shoulders I've ever seen. It's like him and Dwight Howard must have like come from the same like stock because it's – it's kind of unbelievable. So it's like it's easy to see how that guy put on weight and it wasn't bad weight and how he's – like his body wants to be bigger than it is. Like it, in some ways it almost looks like he's not eating enough food because he's got – Do you think he's hungry? Are, are we <laughs> are we believing? Is what you're suggesting – is this a cry for help from Madison <laughs> Russell? <laughs> if, you, if you just like see his upper body, like sort of like a classic like busting up, yeah. you'd be like, oh, that guy's going to get a lot bigger. Look at those shoulders. Those are enormous. If, right. if somebody told you like, oh, he's an athlete so he's – you know conditioned to where you know putting on strength is a good thing and all that like so I, I almost feel like he might want to go that direction and you could also use the excuse that doesn't you know hurt his pride that it's like oh starlin castro plays here that's right. his spot you can't move him you're going to play in third why don't you you know be the most third baseman you can be and you know uncle sam points at him and you know hands him a big steak and says hit some dingers <laughs> Um, and that, well, in that, in that scenario you've just created, is that, is that push Chris Bryant to right field then? Yeah, Chris Bryant, if he plays third base, which, I mean, he will play third base this year. I don't know if he's good enough to play there for, you know, this year, next year. If, even if he is, it won't last more than four or five years because he's kind of hanging by thread, just kind of given how big he is in general. And he's more of a long speed guy than like a short, quick movements, flexible kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, even if he does stick, it's not going to be for that long. Okay. And, and, you know, same goes for Joey Gallo and Michael Franco. Like there's a lot of sort of fringy third basemen that really hit that you're going to try to leave there because you want to, but for whatever reason, whether it's foot speed or size or, you know, actions or feel or whatever, like it's not going to last forever. Same for Miguel Sano. There's a lot of guys like that. It's a, it sounds like what you're saying though is that Bryant is maybe a little bit more fleet of foot, at least underway than, than some of the other guys you just mentioned. Yeah, I mentioned, I think, in the chat that one of the teams I talked to before Bryant was drafted said, we don't think he can play third, but we'd leave him in center field for a while. Like, we think he can play center. And I talked to that guy again uh, recently. He's like, yeah, no, he'd probably still be playing center for us right now. And, you know, it'd be sort of like Jock Peterson. Like, people would be telling us he can't play center and you'll have to move him and whatever. But it's like, Jock Peterson is going to play center field in the big leagues and they're going to find out if he can play there or not. Yeah, well, they don't have a lot of other options, I guess. Uh, do the, the Dodgers? So he'll. I mean, regardless of how whether he can or can't play center field, he will be their best center fielder in recent years. And he's got a great name. He does have a great name. Yeah, it's a good. And point. in my and in my uh, Puig BP video that I posted on the YouTube page this week, uh, he's in the background like goading him into throwing his bat. <laughs> he was is this a different? Is this a different? No, it's the same one. Video? I just had to put it on the on the fan graphs. Oh, okay. Uh, let me ask you. 
you've addressed this in part uh, leading up to now, but these uh, you you've done something which I haven't seen before in Prospect List. I don't I don't think I have. Um, you use a tiering system, a, t- a tiering system, and and you really ask. And it was one of your many caveats. You ask people to pay just as much, if not more, attention to the future value tier to which a player belongs than the actual ordinal ranking. When you said tiering system, I thought you were referring to how I cried during the process, but then I realized nobody actually knows about that. Nobody knows, yeah. Until now, until this moment. Or, I mean, I didn't cry. (laughs) Uh, Would you... Kylie, you used a fetal position, brother. (laughs) Would you explain your... uh, I mean, I guess... uh, I don't think... Have you ever seen a prospect list like that? No, I don't think so. And why did it make sense to you? Well, and I don't know, this probably sounds pretentious, but it actually explains this. It's also the reason why I do the team list the way I do. That's the way you do it for a team. (laughs) Like when I was in Pittsburgh, a team calls about like, oh, they want so-and-so from us. Who do we want? Anyone in that office can tell you who the top 10 or 15 prospects are for that team. Like it's on the internet. Everyone knows the names. We have all the reports. The stats are, you know, they're all in double A. You've heard of them. Like it's very easy to do. Anyone could do that mm-hmm. and throw them up on a board and we could talk about it. But when you get down to the guys that are like the secondary pieces in a deal or if it's a small deal for like a DFA guy who's the guy you get, it's like guys from instructs that haven't played full season ball, July 2 guys, DSL guys, short season guys. And that was the thing I did because, like, I had some background in that area. I was the sort of low guy in the totem pole, and that, I was like, "All right, I'll do this." And I knew, I knew some uh, some people that had insight into this. Uh, I won't say who, but that would sort of help me out. And you know, I, I just had ways of figuring stuff out. And so when you know I, I took the Fangrass job, they were like, "Oh, do you want to do prospect close? Like, what do you do? Like a top ten or top 20? And I was like, "Well, I always thought it was dumb that." People would make, oh, every team gets 20. Like, some teams you need 30, some teams you need 16. Like, I'd like to do as long as each system dictates. And if my thing when I was in Pittsburgh was I was the guy that went and found prospects, you know, 20 through 50, depending on how good the system was, then it would kind of be disingenuous of me to, like, talk about, like, oh, I did this with the team. I like, look at how great I am. I worked for a team before. And then just give you, like, you know, 18 prospects. It was like, if I'm going to do it, let's do it. And let's do it like how they do it and try to make it as, you know, authentic of an experience for the reader as you can and explain this is the way, you know, it's done. And you can you can say it's dumb. That's fine. There's a lot of things that teams do that are dumb, but this is kind of the way they do it. And they use an OFP system and they'll say, like, oh, this guy's a 55, but the guy that put a 55 on him, that guy's kind of a high grader. And it's everyone sort of skips past the tools, basically, because everyone knows what those are. They know what the information is. And they speak in terms of, oh, he's a 55, or he's a 50, or or if you use a two-to-eight system, he's a five, or this guy's a six, this guy's a strong six, this guy's like a low five, he's a high four. Like, that's the shorthand you use to talk about, you know, an entire system of guys and talk about who you want to trade for, because you just can't quote every single piece of information. It just It's too much to talk about. So if if that's how people are going to talk about him, uh, that's what I was going to talk about. And further, when I would send these lists to some people that – or maybe a little more old-school, scouting-oriented type guys that don't really like commenting on lists like this. And I'd be like, oh, I got a Gallo here. He's a six. He's like, oh, yeah, we got a six on him, too. Like, it's like the scale he uses, too. So it's like those sorts of people. He doesn't have to be like, oh, he feels like he's 16 or he's 25. Like, he doesn't really think in those terms because most teams don't make their own top 100. Uh, but he knows six and he knows five and he knows strong five and 
I think he's better than that guy. And so I felt like it would also make it a little easier to sort of, you know, put it in the language of the industry. It's easier to bring more people in to get more opinions. Right. Well, I was, I also think that it might, in terms of the civility of the dialogue that was appearing after the post, I, I think that the tiering system might lend itself to that because you do end up uh, with fewer arguments like, oh, that, you know, that guy's, 13, I think you should be 18 or something like that, right? Yeah, a lot of people mentioned Aaron Sanchez being at 70. And I was like, well, he's a 55, and the top 55 is 29. So I wouldn't say just make him 29. I put him 70 for a reason. But, like, 29 is Jake Thompson. He's not that different than Aaron Sanchez. Like, I think he's better, but it's not like if someone offered me to them in a trade, it's like, I'll give you Aaron Sanchez and a couple 45s or Jake Thompson. Like, I think about it. So it's like obviously not that huge of a difference if I, you know, take two guys that aren't in the top 200 to bridge that gap. Um, and yeah, and put using the tiers, I think illustrates that a little. And obviously how the tiers get bigger the farther down you go so that there's, you know, more people included. And also I think it, for the sort of more statistically inclined reader, which I think the Fangraphs reader is, there's like an objective scale. Like 55 means I think the most likely outcome is he's two and a half to 2.9 wins at his peak season which you can then extrapolate what that means for his career and things like that. And if he's in A-ball, you realize that's a wider band of possibilities. If he's in AAA ready to go, that means, you know, if he's Steven Souza and he's going to be in the opening day lineup, then that means I think this year he might be worth two and maybe even as many as three wins and he might get better for a couple of years. And he's just as likely to be a 50 that's worth one and a half to two wins as he is a 60 that's worth three wins. Like, that's, I feel like, the kind of information that the more casual, statistically-based fan wants that isn't that's sort of new to prospects. I can't give them a triple slash on and a percentage chance to set. Like, that's sort of too specific. But that sort of sort of objective evaluation, I think, is more useful than, well, he's 28th on a list, and based on 15 years of list, that guy's worth 18 more over his six-year period. It's just like, who cares? Like, I can't even follow what that means. Right. Well, there's just more steps in between. I mean, you can you can uh, you know you can look at that information, but but I think what you're saying is is you're actually you're sort of cutting out the middleman so far as that's concerned. You're saying, well, here's how many wins he's probably worth, how other players in this in this region have been worth, and you're you're sort of making a con- you're making a direct comment about it. And while we poo pooed it earlier, I cannot state how much I think I'm smarter than everyone else. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Dave Cameron, Dave Cameron uh, in uh, on the podcast yesterday, um, and I think he's made similar claims before, but he said something like, um, he said that he thinks that, from, from his perspective at least, that the guys that in, in the world of prospect analysis, um, a world of which whether you like it or not, Kyle McDaniel, you are a member. You're a citizen in that, on that planet. Um, uh, that there is a tendency to overvalue um, those sorts of prospects who have a high ceiling, even if it also comes along with great risk, um, and maybe not put as much weight on prospects. And then in the sort of poster boy, well, there are a couple of poster boys, I guess. Ben Zobrist is one of them. Matt Carpenter is probably another. Competent players across the board above average array of skills, if not necessarily any overwhelming tools. Um, yeah, he was not talking about it in the context of your list specifically, but, but but your list was the sort of entry point for our conversation. And I'm curious for you, you've probably stated it in part before, but for you, how do you navigate that, the idea of ceiling, the idea of floor, the idea of risk, and in, in combining all of those elements together? I don't have a good answer for that. Okay. 
<laughs> well, like I'd I'd like to think that I am the guy that if there is a Matt Adams who isn't even in if they went that deep a top two hundred for anybody that he'd show up on my list because I recognize something and I, you know my process is better and I'm right and you know thump my stomach and say how smart I am which I believe I've already done twice on this podcast mm-hmm. uh, I. I'm sure there's many Matt Adamses that I wrote a report on that I didn't put on this list. Uh, and there's probably even a few that, you know, you could make a case even based on what I wrote should be on the list. Uh, and you bring up Matt Adams, I assume, because he was picked in the 23rd round and is a first baseman. And that profile, those two things together, they're not entirely promising. Yeah, yeah, he's a good – like Matt Carpenter has tools to where you're like, oh, somebody should have seen something. Matt Adams shouldn't have been on a list. Like there's no reason he should – like he's overweight. He can't really play defense. He doesn't have so much power that he could be a 45 bat and be an everyday guy. He hit some and the swing was okay, but he wasn't like – one of these guys where it's like, you know, DJ Peterson or Billy Butler where it's like, oh, this guy's getting it. He's got all kinds of tools. Like, he's one of those guys where, like, when he's in double A AA or triple A, you could consider putting him on a list, but should basically never be on a top 50. Uh, so yeah, that guy doesn't bother me. Matt Carpenter probably bothers me more. Not that I was even writing about process. I was working for a team when that happened, so I don't know what I would have done. Uh, I, I will say one of the teams I worked for where Matt Carpenter was in the minors and wasn't nobody, he was one of the guys that I, uh, that I kind of stumped for. So I actually did find him, but it was because of, uh, it was because of statistical stuff. It wasn't because of scouting or that I, I had never saw him. Um, but there was something about a statistical profile that was very appealing. I could, I'll leave it at that. Right. Uh, which is another reason why I was sort of interested in him wondering like, Hey, if I wasn't with the team and I was, you know, doing what Keith Law does, would I would have picked up on that having just the information that the public has, not the sort of proprietary stuff that, uh, a team has that brought me on to him. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to think that over the next year, uh, I will be able to make a more objective process for making sure I don't forget those guys. And I think it will say a lot when, let's say, like Robert Ref Snyder was in the 143 to 200 range. If he goes nuts this year, then I'll be like, okay, there's a guy I missed on. Now I can go back, see what my notes said, see what I said, like see where I'm at. Like I kind of need to – basically I need to screw up <laughs> to be able to fix the problem. It doesn't exist yet because I haven't had the opportunity to screw up, which I am certain I will very soon. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's one of those things you kind of need the experience to see sort of where your holes are and what the guys look like. But there was actually – I think I mentioned in one of the chats uh, one of – some guys that – so like I said, some more old school scouting guys that don't want to say like, oh, move JP Crawford up one spot. Are you crazy? They'll just give me principles to look for. And I actually, I save all the emails and I put them and they take the emails that I get about the list and I cut and paste them on, on the spreadsheet next to all the names. So I can go through and like highlight the ones that have like have suggestions or adjustments that I haven't taken into account. And here, I'll read you one of them. Uh, really scrutinize the high-level minors performers that are not consensus guys and be logical if they belong in the group. Alan Craig's of the world perform well in the minors but never make these lists because they were never anointed to begin with. And I have that one highlighted still because I was like, that's something I should like put on my refrigerator <laughs> and like, carry around with me. And this guy typed it out on his iPhone uh, when I just sent him the list, and he was like, not going to respond to anything specific. Here's some things to sort of guide you. It was like a like a Gandalf kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, he's right. And I, 
I didn't go through each individual list with that in mind, but obviously now I will be able to. And the remaining list, I'll be able to do that. And then I can maybe pick out some guys, and then I'll see them in person or be able to ask people about it over the year. And Anyway, I'd like to think next year I'll be able to do that better. I'm assuming I'd, I'd, I'd drop the ball at some level on that this year just because of the sort of newness of the process for me. The, uh, it's, it was, yeah, I like that you brought up Rob Refsnyder. I came across something the other day because he – I think it was during the 2012 College World Series – um, there's like they you know after after it they name like the all World Series team or whatever. Both he and Devon Travis were on that team and they occupy very similar place in terms of prospect analysis. At this and they point. went in like the fifth and tenth rounds. Like they were not really guys. Right. Yeah. But they both they both appear to. I mean, because the the second base spot in Toronto to which team uh, Travis was traded is is not very deep. And I think that, you know, they have uh, a sort of like surprisingly washed up Mycerus tourist there now. Um, but they got then, free health care up there, so they'll stay healthy. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then uh, Ref Snyder is, I think, is a, a pretty strong candidate to get some plate appearances in the major leagues this year and was fantastic. And they have very similar profiles in terms of like kind of bat first guys, uh, not huge bats, but um, decent hit tool. Who can who can play some second base? And then another member of that team who who was also on the world he was also like the all series team during that 2012 College World Series was Sherman Johnson, the Shermanator, uh, the Shermanator who who uh, uh, well, I like quite a bit. I'm just gonna say it. Uh, and I th- and I think that Sherman Johnson even if he doesn't make it, Sherman Johnson. Has definitely performed as a as a minor leaguer to this point. You have talked about Sherman Johnson more on this podcast than his mom has to his friends. <laughs> no, I know, but I like I like Sherman Johnson, and he you know, he he used to, like he all he did was walk basically in college, but he's it's a DJ Khaled song. <laughs> What'd you say? It's a DJ Khaled song. All he does is walk. <laughs> I, maybe that will be the introductory. Can you make that the introductory? Can you it is the, now <laughs> the musical interlude for this edition of Fingerside. <laughs> Good. Um, the uh, um, what I want to say though is that he he actually has he, like he doesn't he's not just all walking like he's got an, enough in the way of contact skills. It's not like he's uh, patient to a fault. Is my point about Sherman Johnson? And he can play second and third base. What do you want? What do you want from Sherman Johnson? He has 17 home runs this year, but that was also because he was playing in the Cowboys. I imagine. Uh, like the Mormons with the ties show up at your door and you give them that speech. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Sherman Johnson, he can play as a utility infant. Yeah, like, what do you want? And they're like, uh, we have some literature for you. And you're like, never mind, close the door. <laughs> yeah, well, I've actually only ever had one visit from the from uh, Jehovah's Witness. Or Je- uh, no, you were talking about Mormons, but I've, have you ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door? I have not answered the door when there has been one, although I have a friend who is somewhat notorious for always letting them in the house <laughs> whenever yeah. they come over. Well, I've had they once or or maybe they made a and they might have made a repeat visit. I was uh, at least in my community, I was Portland, Oregon, and they were very sweet there. Um, um so we we had a you know yeah a decent time. They were very civil. Also, I have one more. Uh, I don't know, response to uh, the thing you're quoting. I actually have the podcast with Dave Save. I haven't listened to it yet. Okay. <laughs> I've been writing a lot. I don't know if you heard. Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Um, but one of, I guess one of the things is the list, not just my list, but I think everyone's list is attempting to capture trade value. And I think at some level it does, uh, whether it's causation or correlation, uh, it gets, you know, in the ballpark. Um, 
And so, for instance, in the final group of like 143 to 200, uh, some of the last guys I added were like kind of rookie ball, low level guys. Like Michael Chavis was drafted last year. Joe Marais is rookie ball. The Gilbert Lara was a July two guy. McNurse Sierra is a short season guy. Matt Chapman, uh, was a first rounder. Uh, Wilmer Defoe's only played low A. Aristides Aquino, short season. Verdugo, Davidson, both from last year's draft. So the, the feedback loop for these sorts of lists is if Michael Chavis is in the top 20 next year, I put him in the top, you know, somewhere from 40, 143 to 200, and I look smarter than if I didn't put him on there at all. <laughs> and if nobody put him on their top 100, but I went deep enough that I mentioned him on a top list, and then he's a stud next year, then I look smart. And if I put uh, Matt Adams on there, and then he goes and has two wins next year. He's not on the list next year. Nobody cares. <laughs> like no one's going back to check. And that's one of the things I'm going to do differently, which is next year, each team list I'm going to go over last year's team list and say, "Whoa, I really missed the boat on this guy. <laughs> what did I do wrong?" Well, I think there's incredible. That needs to be said. Yeah, I think there's incredible value in that. And I, I think you've mentioned it before. I've noticed it elsewhere. Is that there's a weird space where, uh, essentially, as soon as a, a prospect loses his rookie eligibility. Then, you know, or, you know, he has his 50 innings pitched or 130 at bats. Like he, he enters a weird, um. Never gets written about except by a beat writer. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, it, yeah, it's a weird purgatory of, of sorts because, yeah, maybe, you know, I mean, he's, he's, it's his first exposure to the major league. So there's a strong chance he's not playing very, very well, but there's well, also a reasonable chance that he'll be good in the future. Well, and the reason for that is twofold. One, the scouts that go to big league games that can tell you something you can't see on TV are different people than the ones that cover the minors in July 2 in the draft. And often they are the kinds of people that talk to Buster only and not people like me. Uh, cause they're like, you know, former GMs that are 60 and just hang out at big league fields all day as a, people I talk to tend to be, you know, under 50. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of the sort of scouts I sort of run with. So people like me get less information in the big leagues. But also, even if you get information about, oh, I saw this guy for two games in the big leagues and he's doing X and BP and it's showing up in the game and whatever, some guy at home that watches every single game may literally know more than me or some other guy about what this guy's doing in the big leagues. And obviously I can't watch every big league game and have any idea what's going on with what I'm actually writing about. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like the prospect writers sort of seed that area to – you know, Jeff Sullivan and Dave Cameron and yourself, because there might be, you know, Sherman Johnson gets to the big leagues, you're going to watch every moment of every game. You're going to know more than the scout that watches him for five games in all likelihood if you watch closely and have sort of like a discerning eye. Or at the very least, you'll know more than me or Keith Law or whoever knows about his like adjustments to the big leagues because you're going to see what pitch it is that gives him trouble, even if you're just sort of passively paying attention. And I'm not going to be able to know that unless the scout that I've track down who I don't talk to a lot, saw him for five games and happened in the five games to see that. So it's it's sort of again, it's one of those sort of feedback loop things where I put Alex Verdugo in that final group at the top two hundred and he shoots up the list, I get a thumbs up. I put Rob Refsnyder on there and he wins he gets three wins when rookie of the year, nobody really cares because there's no like review process. And then if Ref Snyder goes up and does something great and then he sucks and people want to know what's wrong with him, like nobody cares if I get it right because people don't really come to me for that. So if I do it once, people aren't going to start coming to me for it. Or if they do, they're just going to be disappointed. Um, so you have – there's sort of like penny stocks essentially, these guys. Yeah. That the, uh, the and if you nail a penny stock, that's how you get on like the cover of a magazine. And you like, you know, guess that Coke is going to go up 10% over the year over year. Like nobody cares. <laughs> 
And and so the last part of that is we're trying to sort of map trade value. So if the industry values upside, uh, then I'm supposed to value upside. And I can say that I disagree with them, and a guy in the industry would tell me to put 20th, I put 40th. Like, I can do that, but I can't just not put him in the top 100 because I don't like him. Like, at some level, he, like, he has value. And so if the guy flames out and is no good, uh, when you sort of look back at the list 10 years and say, well, this guy had zero war, this guy had zero war, what a terrible idea, that guy could have been traded for a guy that got 50 war. So it's like the list still tells you something. It just tells you something in the short term. And then in like the aim of the list is in in a perverse way, is it necessarily to get every single guy right 10 years from now mm-hmm. as it's sort of presented as what it's trying to do? It's really trying to get what's the list going to be like next year and what's going to be the trade value of these guys immediately. Like, it's actually more short-term than people realize. Well, it's, well you, it's what you're suggesting. It's taking a snapshot of that moment in time. But um, it, I think people – when if a guy who doesn't read lists asks a prospect guy that makes a list – what are you trying to do? It's like, oh, well, it's upside and it's, you know, likely to reach it and it's risk and how far away is he and, you know, sort of the list of things that people like me are used to saying. But that it's ridiculous to say, like, Alex Jackson is four years away from the big leagues. I can properly value all of these things. It's like, no, we can't. And especially you can't do it for a 100 people at once and, like, rank them correctly based on what that is. You can tell everyone where the industry has them and say it's, taking all these things into an account, but like the human brain can't handle all that stuff. So it's really, it's like it, trade value is an analog for what we're actually trying to do, which is guess how good the players are going to be. And that's what we're, that's the easiest thing to make the list. It's, it's an analog for what everyone says the list is for. Cause it seems less interesting to say it's trade value. Cause then people can just say like, Oh, well, you're wrong. It's, it, well, what about this trade? And, and then, you know, then you're wrong. But with the way the lists are now, it's no one's going to know for 10 years. So you've got to trust me because I'm the expert. <laughs> It's really uh, stupid. The way I'm explaining it makes it seem like a waste of my time to be doing it. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, – well, let's move on to something uh, different. Uh, last question, in fact. Uh, I, I went through the list that I uh, – this is a simple process, but seems could be uh, educational. I said uh, I'm going to look through the first guy whose name whose – name, well, maybe I recognize the name, but I don't really know a lot about the guy. So number 20th is, is – you just mentioned him. His name is Alex Jackson. That's um, That's weird. He's a, he's a Seattle Mariners prospect, and I think that, well, he was a 2014 draftee. Is that right? Yep. Okay, uh, so tell me about Alex Jackson because I saw some of the other ones. I don't know if maybe I went by some other oh, – yeah, so like Carlos Rodon was a 2014 draftee as well. However, he had you know quite a bit of exposure in college. Um, I don't know if there were any other 2014s guys in the, in the middle, but this was uh, – the he was the most notable. So tell me about Alex Jackson. What, uh, what's going on with him? He is the classic hasn't done anything, but it looks right guy. He's a looks like a six bat, looks like six game power. It's a six arm. Uh, he can play right field, at least average. He can run not quite average, but close to it. He was a standout as early as a freshman or sophomore in high school. He's one of these sort of Bryce Harper, Will Myers guys that could probably play catcher if you needed him to, but it's the bat's going to move so quickly that – you know, there's no reason to leave him back there because it's going to just, you know, it's going to get him hurt. It's going to do all, and then the, the gloves going to be behind the bat anyway. Like, just get him to the big leagues. Um, yeah. And like, I guess sort of his interesting separator skill 
is at like 15, he could drive the ball out of the park with a wood bat during batting practice to the opposite field. And like, it isn't like he does this, like clearly changes his swing and does a weird different timing mechanism that he does when he pulls it. Like it just looks completely natural and fluid to him to hit the ball anywhere on the field as easily as it is anywhere else on the field. And it's with power and it's with loft and then it's the line drive. And then, yeah, it's it's uh, it's exactly what you want it to look like. And that, and that ability to hit the ball to the opposite field with power, that's that's usually a good, what, proxy for, I guess, like, total home run power or total, like, it's a, it's a combination of things, yeah? Opposite field game power at a young age uh, is an excellent indicator of future game power and of is usually a proxy for a good hitter in general. Right. And you can look at, you know, Ryan Howard, Joe Maurer, Mike Piazza, Prince Fielder, Joey Votto, like any sort of powerhouse hitter was a guy who hit like a bunch of doubles to the opposite field gap at a young age. And then as they got more experienced and put on more weight and adjusted the swing plane and all that sort of stuff, just turned into a total monster. Pretty much all those guys did that at a young age. And he's from the uh, what the San Diego area it looks like. He was a rival of Brady Aiken all through high school. Oh, really? Okay. All and right. Brady Aiken's uh, like the scrimmage, uh, his first scrimmage of last fall or last uh, winter slash spring when he magically threw 97 and had never done it before was against Alex Jackson and he struck him out and it was just sort of like. Uh, you know, it's it, it's sort of like uh, one of those like rap battles in Eight Mile. <laughs> it's like, uh, not only do I have better rhymes, but I'm gonna come give you those rhymes and embarrass this dude. <laughs> yeah, I I will admit uh, to having watched on ten to twenty thirty occasions a a YouTube video that um, cuts cuts and pastes those rap battles together. And then, and that's all so you can get hyped up to go tell your wife, we're not going to see your movie tonight. We're going to see my movie. <laughs> yeah, we actually, my, my wife and I, oh, uh, we actually watched two movies the last two weeks, and those are the first movies we've watched uh, in like six months at least. Was one of them The Imitation Game? No, although, no, uh, let me take it back. We actually saw The Imitation Game in the theater. Uh, that so was movies, the matching movies. mechanism that is called my brain decided that's the movie you two are most likely to see. No, we did. Uh, we saw Imitation Game. We did see that in the theater over uh, Christmas break. Um, we saw. Uh, we saw. Oh, no, oh, we saw Skeleton. Skeleton Twins. Did you see that with Bill Hader and Chris? No, nope, heard it's good though. Yeah, it's good. It's a quiet. It's not my movie. kind of movie. It's a. It gets a little bit silly and cliche in uh, at certain moments. It's just. It's just a bunch of feelings. I, I want to see explosions. Come well, up. no. The no. The uh, the best parts of the movie are when because Bill Hader and are the explosions. Did <laughs> Michael Bay direct that? I don't think they're many explosions, but th- they're both talented comedians. So yes. those times when you feel like they are the closest to improvising, whether they are or not. Yeah, uh, if best. I'm going to see an indie movie about feelings, it'll be with those two people in it. Yeah, yeah they're very funny. And then we saw, um, and we saw just this past weekend. Uh, this is where I leave you the, with Tina Fey, where they're forced to sit Shiva after the father dies. Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman, yeah, who plays who plays the same role. I mean, I think he's very funny, but it's the same role he plays in everything, which is like the responsible, um, sort of like hard done by. Uh, older older child, who's he plays the the Irish straight man. That's what I've been playing my whole life. Is that what it's called? No, it's it's, it's I don't know. It's a type. I I remember uh, I forgot who it was, but there was a uh, you know Dimitri Martin. I'm sure yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
he told a story, I think it was on NPR, where, I, man, I, I want to say, no, I, I forget who the comedian is that said this to him, but he, uh, he came off the stage and there was a comedian standing there and it was like a legendary guy. Actually, I think it was George Carlin. And he said something like, oh, did you see my act? What did you think? Would love some input. And he goes, I got you pegged. And he's like, what? He's like, low energy wordsmith. And then turns around and walks away. And he was like, he just broke me down into three words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those, those, that type of comment. That's Jason Bateman. You're like, oh yeah, he's the, uh, the, the humble every man straight guy that's Irish. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, it's not three words, but he's that guy. Right. Although he's, he's playing a Jewish person in this particular. Oh, well, movie. he's, he's really expanded his range then. Yeah, there, it is true. Yeah. Darkened his hair a bit and got a little whinier. He, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you see, he says, oi. That's his, that's actually his only line in the movie. We're, just, we're we're getting into offensive territory now. I can feel people. No, 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 no. Because uh, I'm. It's well documented that I would prefer to be Jewish. <laughs> so that's not offensive in that case. It is. I. I it's Some well of my best friends are Jewish. <laughs> no, no. I would. No, no. You don't understand. I don't really have best friends. If I. It's this is point. I wish my best friends were Jewish. That's what I. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. If I could. Unfortunately, if, they're just regular white people. If I if I could if I could convert on on air, I would do that immediately. Yeah, yeah, I think from from a couple weeks ago, Sandy Koufax uh, discussion. I think you made that pretty clear. I, the, the problem is, you, it's hard to convert. They, uh, there are more barriers. Whereas, for example, if you want to become, you know, certain types of certain sects of Christianity, you just say, "I accept the Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior," and they're like, "All right, you're in the club." And 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 also the different denominations. If you're already in, you just jump from one to the other. There's no like process. Right, but with the, with the, becoming a Jewish person is very difficult. I think you got to go through. I might have to. It's a possibility you have to learn Hebrew. But and the circumcision too. You're leaving that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I got a home kit, so it's I can oh, do okay. that myself. You can, it it uh, colors the Easter eggs and also a little little circumcision on the side. I was asked one time to be uh, let's see there's there's a word for uh, a Jewish a group of Jewish group of Jewish men is called a minion and I was in um, it's they, need, they needed to m i n y a n they needed to pray I think it's ten men yeah a group of ten Jewish men is for a certain prayer to form a minion and I was asked. On the street in um, Madison, Wisconsin, near the university, I was. Someone said, "Oh, would you like to be part of our minion?" And I would never been more flattered than being mistaken for a Jewish person on the street in the Midwest. He spontaneously combusted <laughs> with joy. Yes, yeah, joyfully. Yeah. All right, I gotta get going. To dinner time. Uh, dinner time at Chase's Stooley Coles. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Kyle McDaniel. Great, uh, great. I want to say. Uh, I clearly I find you objectionable as a person, and you me, but um, I, I really have been impressed with your prospect work, and uh, this top 200 list is sort of the culmination of that. Um, so I, I say good job to you. Uh, you have uh, delivered on what I thought at the beginning were uh, were ridiculous promises. <laughs> well, and because I already know you're going to come to this part of the podcast to insert the outro music, I can say tell. It's the stoolie. I said hi. No, stop saying it. Stop <laughs> saying it. That has been Kylie McDaniel. I'm uh, I'm Carson Stoolie. This has been Fangraphs Audio.